Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. Sorry, it's been a little while. I've had a crazy hectic schedule. Uh, I got a hectic schedule coming up the next couple of weeks too, uh, but it's been good. I went on uh, Timcast a week ago tomorrow. Uh, that went pretty well. Uh, go check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Um, it's a, it's a Timcast episode, so it's not an interview show like Joe Rogan, but there was uh, current events that we talked about, and I gave them some pushback on some of their talking points. Uh, went rather well. Also, I finally got reinstated to Twitter. So if you go to Twitter and you just type in at Reed Coverdale, I'm back. All 20,000 followers. It's all reinstated. So go, uh, go follow me there if you haven't. Uh, it's been a year and a half of hell trying to uh, evade that ban, but finally don't have to worry about that anymore. And um, Lions of Liberty is also sponsoring this episode. They sponsored the last three episodes and they love me so much. They wanted to sponsor this episode too. So please go check them out. Um, I love both of those guys, John Odermatt and Brian McWilliams. I've met Brian McWilliams personally a couple times. Um, he was at the convention out in Reno, met him at Freedom Fest last year. We've done lots of shows together. They're both awesome in completely different ways. Uh, Lions of Liberty is one of the greatest and longest running libertarian podcast networks in the world. They were doing this before like every single libertarian on earth had his own podcast. Um, and, you know, before podcasting was even really a popular thing, they started this. Uh, on Monday, John Odermatt delivers a powerful mix of inspiration, health, and faith to set your mind, body, and soul free with Finding Freedom. Every Wednesday, Brian McWilliams will make you laugh at our broken world while providing the promise of a better future with Mean Age Daydream. Friday includes shows like Meme Wars or Hate Watch or their famous Libertarians in Living Rooms drinking liquor, liquor episodes. Uh, Lines of Liberty is the first step toward finding freedom. So go check them out. I have all their links listed in the description, unless you're watching this live on Twitter, but everywhere else they'll be in the description. Um, and tell them that you found out about them through me. Um, listen today to the Lions of Liberty Network everywhere podcasts are found. You can find them on, um, you know, all the links I listed in the description. You can go to their website, follow them everywhere. Uh, you know, if you have any way of messaging them, let them know that uh, I'm the reason you found them uh, because this is the first time I've been sponsored and I want it to reflect well on uh, my sponsors. So go check them out. Anyways, uh, I've got a really big guest today, and um, I actually have met him twice. I met him at the Ron Paul Institute event out in Texas back in June of 2022, and then I also met him last September at a free Assange rally in Washington, D.C. He is a former U.S. weapons inspector, former Marine Corps intelligence officer, and an author, Scott Ritter. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Absolutely. So your name has been coming up a lot over the last couple of weeks uh, because of the rally that you were going to attend. And a lot of people don't know who you are. They just, uh, you know, they're seeing your name and they're seeing people talk about you. But a lot of people just have no clue who you are. So I wanted you to tell us a little bit about your background um, from the Marine Corps to being a UN's weapon, a UN weapons inspector and then going to Iraq leading up to the Iraq war opposing the Iraq war, um, all the, um, you know, being grilled by Joe Biden in front of the Senate, all, all that stuff. I just want to hear um, uh, over the course of a few minutes, if you could just kind of uh, compile your resume and what led you to where you are now. Well, I'll do my best. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I, I mean, in short, I was a uh, child of the Cold War. My father was a career Air Force officer. So I was raised all over the world. I went to high school in Hawaii, Turkey, graduated uh, Kaiserslautern American High School uh, in West Germany. Um, and it was my belief that I needed to serve my country. I mean, my father put 26 years in. Uh, I was surrounded by the military. It was the Cold War. The Russians were the enemy, the Soviets. And uh, so I went in the military. Uh, that, that was, that's been my calling uh, from, from, childhood and this is a sincere calling i mean you know today people join the military for for different reasons and that's there's their business and i i applaud anybody who serves their country i joined to kill commies straight up um kill commie for mommy was real uh better dead than red was real this was in the height of the cold war the red menace was there and uh 
I had lived in West Germany. I had stared across the border. I'd gone to Berlin. I had looked the Soviets in the eyes and said, uh, you shall not pass. <laughs> you know? And so I joined the military to literally close with and destroy the Soviet enemy through firepower maneuver. Um, long story short, I ended up in the Marine Corps. Uh, I, I was a Russian uh, studies major in college. I took Russian language, uh, studied their history, studied uh, their culture, not because I was enthralled by them, but because I wanted to kill them. And the best way to kill your enemy is to know your enemy. And I took it seriously. And I became an intelligence officer, spent two and a half years in 29 Palms uh, practicing the art of killing Soviets. Uh, I was an artillery battalion. Uh, if, if anybody's watching the uh, war in Ukraine today, uh, you see the heavy role that artillery plays. That's called real war, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not denigrating anybody who fought in Iraq, um, you know, in, in Afghanistan in the last 20 years. Uh, I'm not saying that wasn't real, um, but it wasn't this. Uh, I learned how to fight this. This is what I mastered. Maneuver warfare in a large-scale ground combat environment where artillery was king. And I was the intelligence officer of an artillery unit. My job was to find targets and put steel on targets in a dynamic fashion. I was pretty damn good at it. Um, fortunately, we, I didn't get a chance to use that skill set. Uh, in 1987, Ronald Reagan signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty with Mikhail Gorbachev to get rid of an entire category of uh, ballistic missiles that were threatening um, the survival of the Earth. These were some of the most destabilizing weapons one can imagine. Uh, to give you an example, the Pershing II missile, which was covered by this treaty, when fired from West Germany, uh, the West German bases could reach uh, the Kremlin in seven minutes. Uh, imagine being a Russian, knowing that you live seven minutes away from nuclear annihilation. So you have to prepare your forces to be able to respond in that time. So we literally lived uh, in a time where we were on a hair trigger for nuclear annihilation. And um, and, and again, I'm not bragging here, but I'll tell you what, everybody listening here today, if you ever meet me, buy me a beer one i don't need more than one but buy me a beer and thank me for saving your life and thank anybody who served in the inf treaty for saving your life because had we not implemented this treaty you wouldn't be here today the world was that close to nuclear annihilation simple straight up it's not a debatable point um you know <laughs> i wasn't born to be a weapons inspector i was born to kill russians uh, but I, you know, they, the Marine Corps was tasked with providing a certain number of qualified Marines to be this new Department of Defense activity called the On-Site Inspection Agency, which was going to send people over for the first time in an arms control environment to do on-site inspection. That is, put human beings on the ground to confirm that the, what the treaty called for was actually being done. Um, they wanted people who had advanced degrees in uh, Russian area studies, who spoke the language fluently and uh, had preferably one or more uh, what they call um, uh, utilization tours. That means that they had served either in the embassy in Moscow or a really cool job was at the Potsdam uh, military liaison mission in East Germany, where you spied on the uh, Soviet group of forces, East Germany. Um, I didn't have any of that experience. I was a lieutenant in a world of majors, lieutenant colonels and colonels and, uh, and generals. Um, but my resume said I had, I had this knowledge. I, I spoke the language. I didn't speak the language. Um, long story short, uh, I ended up being the first guy on the ground in the Soviet Union to implement this treaty. Um, if you want to know about how that came about, I wrote a book about it. I'm not going to, uh, spend the, you know, the time to tell, but I, I, I'm proud of the fact that I was literally the first inspector on the ground in the Soviet Union to implement this treaty. The place I was at though. Uh, wasn't supposed to be inspected. Uh, the, the treaty was originally designed just to get rid of these missiles. So you you know, you know you go in and you inspect, you confirm the missiles are there, then you destroy the missiles and you confirm the missiles aren't there. Um, but a month before the treaty was signed, uh, one of the missiles that were being destroyed is called the SS-20, very dangerous missile, road mobile, three warheads, um, and it's going to go. Uh, the, the Soviets originally didn't want to get rid of them because they're that good. They wanted to keep about 180 of them so they could face off against the Chinese. And we said, well, if you're going to keep those, then we have to monitor your production facility to make sure that you don't produce more than that which is allowed. And they went, you're not going anywhere near that factory. That is a top secret military installation in the middle of a secret city, in the middle of a secret area. No Americans will ever set foot there. We said, well, then go to zero. And they went, yeah, zero. We're not going to have any SS-20s, but you're not getting anywhere near that factory. A month later, or, I mean, a month before the treaty was signed, they uh, said, oops, we made a mistake. 
the uh, missile that we produce at the factory still, it's by, allowed by law, the first stage is the same stage of the SS-20, which means it's a treaty limited item, <laughs> which means we have to account for it. Um, make sure it's not an SS-20. So suddenly we had to build this inspection place at the factory. The Soviets said, you will never be allowed in. That's the job I had to go in and help build this monitoring facility outside of a Soviet missile factory and do the very complicated task of ensuring that no SS-20s were coming out of that factory. Big $12 million x-ray machine, et cetera. Um, but the cool thing about it was, you know, here's a guy who was trained to kill Soviets. I mean, literally, that's... <laughs> If anybody knows Marines, you know, we don't joke around about these things. We're dead serious about the job we've been given. Uh -huh. um, and instead of killing them, I learned to work with them uh -huh. and sort of appreciate them as human beings and realize that I didn't want to kill them, that uh, maybe the world was better off if instead of trying to kill each other, we were doing what we were doing, cooperating with each other to get rid of these missiles that are getting ready to destroy the world. It was literally a mind-bending um, experience for me. Uh, I did a good job. Um, you know, it's not often that a first lieutenant gets to work in a in a billet, you know, an assignment uh, that's a major or lieutenant colonel billet. I was operating well above my pay grade, and we'll talk about that later when Joe Biden accused me of the same thing. But um, no, I, I, I did that job. Um, I got two commendations from the director of the CIA, unprecedented uh, for that. Um, and uh, I came out of that with what they call national level recognition. Um, for again, for a junior captain, pretty cool stuff. Um, the war, I mean, that ended and I, I went back to the Marine Corps and uh, then the war started. Uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and uh, I ended up on General Schwarzkopf's staff. Um, and because I was the missile guy, uh, when the Scuds started flying, I was the guy they turned to to say, how do we kill Scuds? How do we get rid of these things? And so I spent my war um, deeply involved with uh, the Air Force, with uh, Delta Force, with British SAS, um, SEALs, trying to interdict these um, these missile launches and stop them. And um, the war ended and I had what they call a good war, meaning I didn't get killed. Very good. And I did a good job. So once again, my, you know, my, my reputation uh, is increasing. And, and, it's, and at this point, I'm still a very junior captain. Um, but when the war ended, I made a decision that um, I didn't want to be in the Marine Corps anymore. I mean, I love the Marine Corps. I will never denigrate the Marine Corps. But I joined the Marine Corps to kill Russians, to kill Soviets. That's literally why I joined the Marine Corps. And that job was over. We weren't in the business of killing Russians anymore. And um, I had just been to war. I'd experienced war. And I didn't want to experience it again. I mean, I'm glad I served. I'm proud of my service. But sort of there's other things i'd like to do with my life uh, besides spending my whole life focused on killing people i'd experienced uh in vodkinsk the 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 the, the, the sort of the cooler aspect of things of working with people instead of trying to kill people uh -huh. so um i i resigned from the marine corps and i thought i was going to go on to a great career uh with um it, it was hj hines you might know them they're the ketchup guys uh you you know you put the uh -huh. ketchup your hot dog and hamburgers uh they were hiring me to go over and be a um country manager for they were going to put food processing plants in the soviet union um and i was going to be the guy that put these plants in and i thought that was cool i now get to go to the soviet union work on you know making it a better society and um and getting paid well to do it but then uh, the coup came in um august of 1991 boris yeltsin jumps on a tank Gorbachev is kicked out by the KGB and HJI uh, and said, we ain't going in there. So now I'm unemployed. So I was actually putting in applications to uh, the, the, the New Mexico State Police <laughs> for my next career move when the phone rang. And it was a colonel I worked for in the Soviet Union, who's now uh, he's been sent to the United Nations to help create this inspection group. After the war, Iraq was called upon to disarm its weapons of mass destruction chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons, and long-range ballistic missiles. And again, my missile reputation from an inspector and from the war, they said, Scott, you, can you come in and help us build an intelligence unit to track these things down? Because they had started their inspections back in May. The Iraqis had submitted a declaration, just like we did with the INF Treaty, but the Iraqis lied. They, they underdeclared everything. They denied having a nuclear program, denied having a biological weapons program declared only 50% of the chemical weapons program 
and they were hiding about 100 missiles and six launchers. Um, and now the UN has to transition from this gentleman's club where you come in and get a declaration and look for things and turn into something different. And they didn't know what different was going to be because it had never been done before. Uh, the inspections we did with the INF Treaty were gentleman club inspections. Now we're talking about getting rough and tumble here. And so I was called in to help create the rough and tumble unit, the unit that's going to go in, gather intelligence, and turn that intelligence into actionable inspections that we can go in and find the stuff that's hidden. And I did that job for seven years. Um, I'm the longest serving um, inspector um, for, for UMSCOM. There's no one who served longer than me. And um, I'm sort of proud of that fact, too. And I was also the guy that because I was doing the intelligence, you know, normally most inspectors we'd bring in, just so you understand, uh, if we had a chemical problem, we'd bring in chemists who were trained to deal with that specific problem set. And we would train them up for a mission. We would send them in. They would do the job. Sometimes they we'd have to do two or three inspections and then they'd go home. And the same thing, ballistic missile, biologists, nuclear scientists, we bring them in temporarily. They go home. One guy stayed there the whole time doing the intelligence collection, then turning that into an inspection concept of operations and then leading the inspection and then starting the cycle all over again. And that was me. Um, and in the process, I learned an awful lot about Iraq and about their weapons of mass destruction programs. Um, I can safely say that um, other than the guys who actually built the, the weapons, there was probably no one on the planet who knew more about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction programs than myself. Not because I'm smart. I'm not that smart. But because I just did it for seven years. And even a dumb Marine, once you do something for seven years, you know, you can pick a couple things up. Um, I was very aggressive. I, I, I got a, a reputation. The, the Iraqis called me Abu Azamat, uh, the father of all crises, because every time I took a team in, it became a world crisis. And I mean, world crisis of the highest order, where heads of states are meeting to discuss me and my team, what we're doing. The Security Council is meeting in an emergency session talking about war and peace because of me. Um, it, it was it was a unique experience. Um, I I mean, I have to admit it was addictive. Uh, it was you know, it's adrenaline junkie kind of stuff because, uh -huh. uh, you know, we don't have guns. Uh, every time I let a team in, we could have been taken hostage. In fact, we prepared to be taken hostage. <laughs> That's how still stupid this stuff was. We had Delta Force teams waiting on the on the over the horizon. And we had guys with, uh, you know, beacons and hidden in different places. So if we got snatched by the Iraqis, we were supposed to cluster around the beacons and that at you know, at, at an appropriate time when something else happened, uh, we were supposed to move. Delta would come in on their task force, 160 helicopters, kill everybody but us, and then rescue us and take us away. Uh, and we prepared for this. Uh, and that's sort of not what people think when they think of weapons inspections. But that was my life for seven years. Um, I resigned from this position in August of 1998. And I resigned because I wasn't allowed to, be, to, to do my job. I would, had been given an impossible task. You see, the United States never wanted Iraq to be disarmed. Straight up didn't want them to be disarmed. Why? Because if Iraq was disarmed, then the economic sanctions that were attached to Iraq's disarmament obligation would be lifted. And if they were uh -huh. lifted, then all the pressure on Saddam Hussein would be removed and he would continue to rule. Our policy from day one was regime change. James Baker, the Secretary of State under... Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, straight up said in May 1991 that sanctions will not be lifted even if Iraq fully complies because we need Saddam gone. Um, my job wasn't to get rid of Saddam. My job was to get rid of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. And the closer I got to accomplishing that mission, the greater threat I was to U.S. policy. And so the U.S. government, I mean, this is the irony. I, I, I told you I was Abu Azamat, the father of all crises. I mean, on three separate occasions in Iraq, uh, I had assassination attempts on my life. On several occasions, we had guns put to our head. Uh, we were always confronted with armed soldiers. It was very tense. So every mission going into Iraq was like going to war with Iraq. And at the same time, I'm going to war against the United States because they're conspiring against me. They're, they want to get rid of Saddam. They're using my inspection team to gather intelligence to get rid of Saddam. They're doing it without my permission, without my knowledge. They're sabotaging the mission. They're sabotaging me. The more 
um, I guess, influential I got, uh, the more I was a threat. The, they, the, the CIA turned the FBI on me from 1995 onwards. I had an open FBI investigation against me, accusing me of espionage, uh, you know, on behalf of Israel. Uh, imagine. Because why? Because I was the intelligence officer that went over to Israel and opened up an intelligence relationship so we could get good intelligence to point our teams in the right direction to achieve a disarmament result. But because I was succeeding, the reason why we went to Israel is because the CIA stopped working with us. Because they said, well, no, we, we don't want you to succeed. They didn't say that, but that was really what was happening. I said, well, if you're not going to do it, we'll find someone else who could do it. And I went to the Israelis and I said, how would you like us to get rid of the Iraqi weapons of mass destruction that are threatening you? They went, can you do that? And I said, if you help us. So we got this great relationship going, threatening the United States. I was accused of spying on behalf of Israel. You know, that's called treason. Just so people understand, this isn't a joke. The mm -hmm. charges that were eventually leveled against me were charges that carried the death penalty. Now, I was absolved of all this because it wasn't really about putting me in jail. It was about destroying my reputation, about destroying my credibility, which has been the game of the FBI from day one and the CIA. But nonetheless, for seven years, I fought this two-front war between the Iraqis and the United States, trying to accomplish this job. And finally, by August, it was clear I wouldn't be allowed to do my job, so I resigned. Um, I resigned because we couldn't account for 100% of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. That was our job, 100%. We weren't allowed to have what, what is known as qualitative judgments. It was all quantitative, meaning that I have to account for everything. I'm not allowed to put, I'm not allowed to say, hey, what we're missing doesn't add up to anything and it's not a threat. Can't say that. What I have to say is I can account for 95%, but there's 5% missing. And then people would say, well, you got to keep going after that 5%. And because I'm an inspector, I say, I will. But now because it's only 5%, it's easier to hide. I have to do more intrusive confrontational inspections to find it. And eventually they said enough, pulled the plug. I couldn't do my job. I resigned. I ended up testifying before the U.S. Senate. It was a pretty historic event. Um, the first ever joint session of the Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, again, sort of cool if you think about it. <laughs> and uh, But it was very politicized. Uh, I was very naive at, the, at that time. I didn't understand the politics. But um, when Trent Lott, who was at that time the Senate Majority Leader, walked me in and sat me down, um, I thought it was just cool that the Senate Majority Leader was walking me and sitting me down. What I didn't realize is that the Democrats had tried to shut down the hearing, and Trent Lott, again, for the first time in the history of the Senate, shut it down, then brought it back up in emergency session, and then walked me in to reconvene it so that this hearing could take place. Joe Biden, being a senior Democrat, was angry, and so um, there's a couple. There's a there's an infamous clip of him cross-examining me. Uh, mm -hmm. Scotty boy didn't get in. Uh, that's why they get the limos and you don't, you're operating above your pay grade and all that kind of stuff. It was, you know, it was, it was typical Joe Biden. Um, but you know, that was that, um, in December, the, the United States made the decision to, um, pull all inspectors out, which they did under, you know, ordered them out. And then they bombed Iraq using the intelligence gathered by my team and other teams to kill Saddam Hussein and the Iraqis went, we're done. We're done. We're not playing this game anymore. The inspectors will never be allowed back in. And this, this was in 1998. And this started a process where the United States started to say, because we don't know what Iraq is doing, we're going to assume that they're doing the worst thing possible. And then they use that myth um, of the resurrected weapons of mass destruction program to start beating the drums of war. And after September 11th, 2001, and the, uh, the attacks on the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, et cetera, um, they said, we're going to go to war against Iraq. And I'm sitting there saying, why? What's the reason? Remember, I'm a Marine uh -huh. and, um, I'm not against war. There's a lot of people out there. You're not anti-war. You're damn right. I'm not anti-war. You mess with my country. We'll slaughter you. <laughs> I'm not anti-war. Um, but because I have fought in a war, because I know war, I believe that war is the worst thing in the world. It's about people killing people. And before we send people to fight, my Marines, who I love and cherish, go off and give their life. It has to be a cause worthy of the sacrifice we're asking them to make. And therefore, we have to ask ourselves, why are we going to war with Iraq? And if you're going to tell me it's weapons of mass destruction, I'm going to tell you that when I left in 1998, they didn't have viable weapons of mass destruction. 
there was stuff that was unaccounted for. And because you, the security council made it about quantitative, I have to account for everything I had to say based upon your law, because we can't account for it. Iraq is still legally a threat. But once you kick the inspectors out, I was allowed to readjust and reimagine and came up with a qualitative assessment. I actually published it in Arms Control Today, a very prestigious journal in June of 2000, uh, the case for the qualitative disarmament of Iraq. What's interesting about the paper I wrote, uh, it was published in 2000. At the time, the CIA and everybody poo-pooed it. In 2005, when the CIA had to finally admit that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the assessment they wrote, pretty much the paper I wrote, because that's the truth. I don't make stuff up. Uh, but when I, when I came out with that in 2000, people didn't like that. They, they were still arguing that there was uh, the potential for weapons of mass destruction. And that's where I became a, an anti-war activist. Not because I'm against war. I'm against that war. I'm against an unjust war. I'm against a war that doesn't have legitimate justification. Saddam Hussein did not pose a threat to the United States worthy of this, a, a single life, a single Marine, a single soldier, a single sailor, a single airman. Not one. Um, and they were lying, straight up lying. How do I know? Because remember, I just told you for seven years, I was the guy. There was no one else better. I'm not better. There were guys better than me, uh, but the, a lot of people better than me. But there wasn't anybody with the sustained experience. Mm -hmm. I knew everything that the West knew because I liaised with the Israelis. It's not like Israel was sitting on a cache of secret intelligence. I knew it all. The United States, I knew it. I knew everything they knew. Fact is, they later admitted that once the inspectors left, they didn't have any new intelligence because we were the intelligence collectors for the world. We collected the intelligence. And I knew this. So when I saw people like Colin Powell give his presentation on the, on February 5th of 2003, where he held up a vial of white powder and said, this is dry powdered anthrax and the Iraqis, oh, a spoonful of this can kill millions. I went, they don't make it. Never did. Don't know how. Why are you putting it up there? Why are you lying? Everything he said in his presentation was a demonstrable lie. And yet he said it, people believed it, and we went to war. One of the most frustrating things. Now, I tried my best to stop that war. I mean, people, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'm sure we might talk about in a bit about this peace rally coming up. And apparently I don't have the uh, the street cred uh, to, to attend this peace rally. Uh, well, let me just tell the people a little bit about what I did uh, to try and stop a war. In... Um, in 2002, while, well, let's go back. In, um, in, 2000, in 2000, I um, decided that I was going to make a movie because you write a book. I wrote a book and um, nobody reads it. People like movies. So I was going to make a documentary. So I actually went to Iraq and made a document, documentary film called In Shifting Sands. Um, if you watch it today and people have watched it, uh, you can go to my um, my my website scottritterextra.com it's free watch the movie i'm not making this stuff up it's there and when you watch it you're gonna go wow that was accurate yep 2000 i made the movie came out in 2001 um the fbi tried to destroy my life uh starting at that point i mean they literally uh followed me uh they <laughs> circled my house everywhere i went they were following me taking photographs of me and my family um in an effort to intimidate me to not make the movie i made the movie anyways um, but the movie, again, didn't resonate because the American people weren't plugged into this. They still believed at face value everything negative said about Iraq and Saddam Hussein. Sort of about what's happening today about Russia and Vladimir Putin. Everybody who sits there goes, Putin this, Russia that. You Are you going to tell me you have a PhD in Russian area studies? If you don't, then don't talk about Putin and Russia because you don't know what you're talking about. The same thing with Iraq and Saddam Hussein. They didn't know what they were talking about. They were just regurgitating that which they were told by mainstream media. Um so I figured that I had to break the paradigm. We were going to go to war because there was no weapons inspectors left in Iraq. And therefore, because there's no weapons inspectors, there was nobody to tell the world that there's nothing left in Iraq. And the CIA was able to manufacture a case for war by making stuff up. And we saw Colin Powell regurgitated all that they made up. I felt that if we could get inspectors back in, we could stop this drive for war. Now, how do you get inspectors back in? I'm just a private citizen. What can I do? Well, I found out that Tarek Aziz, the deputy prime minister, one of the more influential people in Iraq, was going to be in South Africa for uh, a, a, a heart surgery. And so I said, I'm, I'm going to South Africa. I'm going to meet with Tarek Aziz. And I did. And uh, 
he knew me. He knew who I was because of my time as inspector. He's like, why do I want to talk to you? And I said, because I'm going to try and save your country, but not because I care about you. It's because I don't want my Marines to die in a war that doesn't need to, to be fought. I need you to allow me into Iraq to speak to your parliament. He said, why would I? Nobody, no foreigners ever addressed the parliament. I said, I know, but you're going to let me do it. He said, why? I said, because I'm going to address them and they can't ignore what I'm going to say. And then hopefully that creates the political impetus for your government to allow weapons inspectors back in without precondition. He said, that's insane. I said, yes, but it's the only way you're going to save your country. Because if you don't do this, we're going to go to war against you and we're going to kill you all. You're dead man walking. And he thought about it for a while and he said, okay, come to Iraq. And I came to Iraq and I addressed the parliament. Now I was called a traitor. I was called Saddam Hussein shill. I mean, I was attacked like you wouldn't believe by the right wing in the United States. I didn't give a damn because I wasn't doing it for them. I was doing it for the Marines. I was doing it to save the Marines who were going to go across the line of departure if we ever had to go to war. And so I took the heat. Um, I spoke to the parliament. And as I thought, the fact that I spoke, and remember, nobody reviewed my speech, and they were scared to death what I was going to say. And I spoke, and I said it, and it was pretty harsh. I didn't pull any punches, but it got me an audience with all the people I needed to speak to, the foreign minister, um, the deputy prime minister, the uh, vice president, Taha Yassin Ramadan, who was actually, if you know anything about Iraq at the time, was running the country because Saddam Hussein was busy writing love poems and poetry. Um, so I got to speak to the decision makers. When I, when I talked to Taha Yassin Ramadan, um, he, he said, again, tell me why we're going to do this. And I said, because if you don't, I'm looking at a dead man. Now, this is a guy who actually executes people. And he had a pearl-handled pistol on his hip. And his hand went to his pistol, and he's looking at me like, and I'm like, oops, <laughs> maybe I took it a little too far this time. Uh, but he, he nodded, and I left. I came back to the United States, and again, I was just being grilled. I was supposed to go on CNN Crossfire. And um, I was told by the producer, he said, you know, do you really want to do this? I said, yeah, I need to do this. I mean, I need to tell people what I was doing in Iraq. He said, but they're going to crucify you because they're, they're mocking you. They're saying that you're a tool of Saddam, that you... All you're, you're a propagandist. All you're doing is Iraqi propaganda. I said, okay, we'll have that fight. Five minutes before I was supposed to go on, the producer comes in and goes, did you see the headlines? I said, no, I'm here. <laughs> Turned it on. Saddam Hussein said weapons inspectors are going to be allowed back in without any precondition. My mission worked. I went to Iraq. I spoke to the parliament. They went to Saddam. Saddam allowed the inspectors back in, and that changed the whole crossfire thing. And this is one of the greatest accomplishments of my life. Now, ultimately, it failed. Uh-huh. But if you don't understand what it took for one American to go and do this, to put it all on the line, put everything on the line, to open the door to the FBI to come in. I was called the, 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 the greatest threat to national security by the, uh, the, the um, national security advisor. Uh, I put it all on the line to try and stop a war. So anybody who's out there saying, Scott Ritter's not anti-war enough, uh, put your resume up against mine right now. Do you have anything on your resume that even comes close to what I did and what I was willing to do to stop a war? And if you don't, back up. So um, the the thing that's screaming out to me about all of this is that um, even leading up to the Iraq war, there were cross-examinations taking place. Eventually they stopped and that's what led us to war eventually. And we're kind of, um, we're, we're repeating that process with Russia right now i mean we've you know we got rid of the inf treaty that you were talking about earlier um you know there's no negotiations taking place at all there's no um there's no talks there's no there's just absolutely zero communication at all and tensions are just getting higher and higher and higher um with your expertise uh from your time in the soviet union and in iraq um you know do you have any hope that things are going to turn around like is there any i mean the united states is sending Abrams tanks to Ukraine. And I just saw a report that they're going to be encouraging Ukraine to retake territory before they sit down with Russia and try to come to some sort of deal. Um, What do you think the next move is here? Are we just going to go all in on this even more than we have? Are we just going to keep pumping money? Are we going to turn this into World War III? What do you see coming down the pipe at this point? You know, I don't have a dog in this hunt. I mean, this, I mean, I, what I, what I have is uh, the concern of an American about uh, the policies of my government that are, that could possibly lead to world war three. Uh, 
but a lot of people have called me a Russian propagandist. It ain't my first rodeo. I was called an Iraqi propagandist beforehand. I don't care. It's like water off a duck's back. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why they call me a Russian propagandist is because I've made a concerted effort to reach out to Russians through Russian media um, to open up a line of communication that otherwise wouldn't exist. I mean, the, the, as you said, no one's talking to anybody right now. There's there's no communication between government and government. And the American people are infected with this, this, this disease called Russophobia, where they're just conditioned to accept anything negative said about Russia or its leader, and they just regurgitate it like we did with Iraq. So you're right. The same pattern's taking over and over. So what I've decided to do, um, and again, people are like, Scott, who are you to make that decision? I'm called a citizen of the United States of America. If you don't like it, lump it. I mean, I got one vote. You got one vote. Cancel me out. But you're not going to silence me. My job right now is to open up as many different lines of communication with Russia as possible. To, for twofold. One, to get information out of Russia and make it accessible to Americans. I do that. One of the ways I do that is through a podcast, uh, The Scott Ritter Show. Mm -hmm. um, and I, every week I interview a interesting Russian figure. Some of them are military figures. Some are civilian figures. Some of them are very senior. Some of them are academics. But the idea is these voices otherwise would never be heard in the United States ever. So I interview them for an hour. I ask questions. I give them a chance to speak. I don't try and shut them up. And they provide information flowing this way. And then the other thing I do is I provide information flowing that way. I I am interviewed by uh, Russian uh, you know, journalists, and I answer questions they ask to give them an American perspective. So the idea is to create this communication. So all the people out there are like, you're just a Russian propagandist. Again, you're wrong. I'm a concerned American citizen doing everything I humanly can to prevent World War III. Um, now, what's going on in, in Ukraine? Let me set it up by just telling the following short story um, about July 2021. What's interesting about July 2021 is we were in Afghanistan. And uh, if you remember, leading up to Afghanistan uh, for, for 20 years, we had generals going to Congress telling them a couple things. One, how utterly important it was that we were engaged in Afghanistan. It was the most important struggle in the world. We could not let the Taliban win. We could not allow Al-Qaeda to be resurrected because of 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, uh, playing that mantra over and over again. And then the other thing they said is, we're winning. And all you have to do is give me more to get that mm -hmm. victory. But we're winning. We are winning. We are going to win. This is an important mission. We are winning. We are winning. We are. They all lied. For 20 years, they lied. We weren't winning. We were never winning, never winning. We were fooling ourselves. Um, and it wasn't an existential struggle. The fact is, when 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 we started, you know, maybe you can make the argument uh, that in order to get Osama bin Laden, we had to take out the Taliban. That's, a, to me, a fundamentally flawed argument. The Taliban didn't attack us on 9-11. And had we worked with the Taliban, as they had offered, uh, their foreign minister at the time was a guy named Mutawakkel, a moderate Taliban. And I remember debating Richard Holbrook. And I said, why don't you engage with the moderate Taliban? He went, there are no moderate Taliban. I went, you're a moron because mm -hmm. there are moderate Taliban and they want to talk to us because they don't want what's about to happen to happen to them. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a thing called Pushtun Wali. And most Americans probably haven't heard about it, but it's the tribal code of the Pashtu people uh, that basically says, if we invite you in as our guest, we will defend you with our lives. But it's a two-way street. You cannot do anything while you're our guest that dishonors us, like murder women and children, launch a terrorist attack. Um, and so one of the things the Taliban were saying is, hey, if Osama bin Laden did what you're saying he did, give us the evidence. And if he violated Pushtun Wali, we'll take care of it. And I'm like, how innovative would that be <laughs> to mm -hmm. let, the, let the Taliban take care of it? But we couldn't because... We we're incapable of thinking like that. We had to solve the problem. We had to come in with the military force. We had to get revenge because it was all about revenge. It was all about exacting revenge. And as you know, as it turned out, we went to war against the Taliban. We didn't get Osama bin Laden, and we ended up in a 20-year conflict. Yes, 2011, some Navy SEALs went in and killed a 57-year-old diabetic. Bravo, guys. 
I mean, good stuff. I'm not denigrating the Kurds. I'm not at all. I'm just saying that had zero impact on the conflict. All it did is make a couple Americans feel good so they could get near the White House and shout USA, USA, USA. But it didn't resolve anything because mm -hmm. guess what? We've got our butts handed to us in Afghanistan. We got beat. After every general said we wouldn't, we couldn't, we did. In July of 2021, uh, Ashraf Ghani, the president of uh, Afghanistan, called Joe Biden and said, hey, we're in trouble here. We got 20 to 30,000 screaming memes getting ready to come over the border, and we ain't got nothing to stop them. This is, this is going south bad. And Biden went, whoa, 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 time out. And the transcript's available. I'm not making any of this stuff up. Biden said, you need to actually go out and uh, flip the script, change the narrative. You need to tell everybody everything's going to be okay, even if it's not true. That's a direct quote from Joe Biden, even if it's not true. Why? Because we need to shape the perception, perception of success. Shape it. So the U.S. government's all about lying, lying through their teeth. Their lips move, they're lying. Joe Biden was ordering Ashraf Ghani to lie about ground truth. This was in July. In August, suddenly we're in Kabul with the most cluster you-know-what in the world taking place with the evacuation, and then we're gone. The Taliban won. They beat us. And uh, the reason why I bring this up is now we come in and we're listening. I mean, General Mark Miley just came on and gave a statement, you know, the Russians are losing strategically, operationally, and tactically. I'm like, really? I mean, how could you possibly say that? You know, there's a... Um, there's the, the, the general that's uh, in charge of uh, the U.S. forces in Europe right now, and I, I just his name uh, escapes me for the moment. But he, uh, back in January, was speaking for a Swedish uh, conference, and he said, um, what's happening in Ukraine right now is we're not ready for this, we being the United States, we being NATO. Uh, what, what, that kind of war, we're not ready for. Uh -huh. They're doing things there on a scale that we don't even, we, we're not ready. That's sort of honest. This guy is saying, we can't do that. <laughs> this is like somebody who's, you know, Pop Warner football team coming out to the Super Bowl, looking at the Kansas City Chiefs going, we, we can't play them. Those, mm -hmm. are, those are pros. What's going on in Ukraine right now is professional war, ladies and gentlemen. It's large-scale ground combat of the kind the United States simply doesn't know how to do today. That's an absolute statement of fact. I know there's a whole bunch of bros out there, vet bros. Or they exist everywhere. I'm a vet bro. Hey, um, what, you're in special forces. I was in special forces. You got big muscles. I got big muscles. And you got your butts handed to you in Afghanistan. Shut up. You don't know what you're doing. That war is different. That war is real war. That war is 20,000 rounds of artillery raining down on your head on a daily basis. And we don't have the ability to stand up and do that right now. And, uh, and, 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 and yeah, uh, on January 14th, there was a meeting. Uh, they call it the uh, Ukraine Contact Group, where 50 ministries of defense of Europe come together on how they're going to help the Ukrainians. They were supposed to be talking about tanks and airplanes. What, what they ended up talking about is artillery, specifically artillery ammunition. Why? Because Ukraine is firing a lot of artillery ammunition. Ukraine fires more, I believe, in one day than we produce in a month. Wow. So in one day, Ukraine fires a month of production. So in 12 days, Ukraine eats up 100,000 rounds, our annual production rate. And now we had a million rounds of ammunition that we gave the Ukrainians, but every 12 days, they eat up one-tenth of that. So 120 days, a million rounds are gone. And now it's gone. What do we do? We have to produce more, but we can't because they're shooting it faster than we can produce it. Ukraine is running out of ammunition, literally. And I don't know. I mean, I, uh, you know, tactics, operations. Um, you're not prevailing tactically, General Miley, when you don't have any artillery ammunition, and especially in an artillery war where the Russians have 10 times the amount of artillery that Ukraine has and are firing, you know, 10 times the amount of ammunition. And they're never going to run out of ammunition because their defense industry is chugging along on all cylinders, cranking out enough ammunition, not only to sustain this battle, but prepare for the offensive to come and to equip the enlarged Russian army. Because again, thanks to our genius in going to war in Ukraine, Russia uh, has decided they're going to expand from 900,000 man army to 1.5 million. 600,000 fresh troops, professional troops, equipped, trained, ready to fight. A kind of war that we're not ready to fight. There's not a single American 
colonel out there worth his salt that says, yeah, I want a piece of that. Colonel, you'd lose your brigade in a week. You would lose your brigade in a week because you don't know how to fight this fight. That's what's going on right now. The Russians are getting a swamp, getting ready to swamp the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians used to have a military of 700,000. Today, their military is less than 250,000. Where did the guys go? They're dead. They are dead or they're wounded. Some uh, Zeluzhny, the Ukrainian general, allegedly told uh, Mark Miley uh, last year in November that Ukraine had suffered 275,000 dead. That was in November, December, January, February, three months. I'm telling you right now, they have suffered more than 320,000 dead. And the number is going to skyrocket as this offensive comes in. Um, what would uh, what would your guess for the Russian deaths compared to the Ukrainian deaths be right now? I would put Russia's uh, fatalities at around 35,000 total, and I would put their wounded at around 50,000. And I would say that Russia suffered around 85,000 casualties. Um, I would say that Ukraine has suffered around 350,000 dead. I would say that Ukraine has suffered probably around 250,000 wounded. And I would say that there's uh, probably 100,000 missing, probably dead um, out there. So 350, 250, five, six, 700,000 casualties. So Ukraine suffered 700,000 casualties. Um, Russia suffered 85,000 casualties. Wow. This is this is backbreaking. Remember, in Vietnam, 10 years, we suffered 58,000 dead. So anybody who thinks that, I mean, you know, a lot of people say, well, Scott, you're overly optimistic about the Russians. Dude, I just gave you an honest assessment of casualties that would crush the soul of any nation. You know, there are Russian moms, there are Russian wives, there are Russian grandmothers, daughters, sons who have lost their fathers in numbers that we can't even begin to imagine. And the Ukrainians should say, in World War II, altogether, fighting the Japanese and the Germans, we lost 300,000 dead in the whole war. World War II, World War. The Ukrainians, in less than a year, have lost more dead than we lost in all of World War II. People, let that sink in. If you think you know what's going on on ground in, in Ukraine, you have no idea, no clue whatsoever. This is the war of a scale and scope and intensity that America's not ready to fight, NATO's not ready to fight. I mean, NATO doesn't have, it's a paper tiger. What army can go in there and do that? And here's another, I'll just leave it with this. The Ukrainians are getting their butts handed to them by the Russians right now. If their military consolidated, turned west and marched, they could beat any NATO military in a stand-up fight. They're that good. They are better than anything NATO has, with the possible exception of the United States. Other than that, they take the British right off the map. They take the French right off the map. They take the Germans right off the map. The Ukrainians are that good, and the Russians are beating them. What's that tell you, guys? You don't want a piece of this fight. This is the dumbest war in the world, and we have to find a way to end it. And unfortunately, the only way this is going to end is with a massive Russian victory. And that's the direction we're heading. So is it fair to say that Putin is still showing a lot of restraint? I mean, I know this isn't news to you and me, but, you know, there's reports coming out now that the United States did, in fact, sabotage the Nord Stream pipeline. <laughs> um, anyone who didn't know that months ago, I, I, don't, I don't know what they were thinking, but... Uh, the fact that he, in my view, has shown the amount of restraint that he has is actually pretty magnificent. Um, what does a massive Russian victory look like in your mind? What does that mean? Is that taking the entire country of Ukraine? Is that taking to the Dnieper River? Like, what 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 does that what does that uh, insinuate? Well, to to answer that question, I think we need to back up and see what Russia has been doing. So far, you know, this is the Russia has been accused of an unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine. And yet uh, it's the United States that's been provoking Russia since 2008 when they invited Ukraine in. You can say, wait a minute, it's a sovereign nation. They're allowed to. But when you have a U.S. ambassador, William Burns, who's currently the CIA director, write a memorandum in April 2008 that says straight up, if you if we invite Ukraine to join NATO, we are initiating a series of events that will inevitably lead to a Russian incursion into Ukraine militarily. So we knew what we were doing when, in November of 2008, we invited Ukraine in. We knew that we were creating uh, the beginning of, of, a, of a conflict. In 2014, we backed this coup. We allowed the, you know, handpicked Victoria Nuland, you know, on the phone before uh, Yanukovych flees, handpicking the successor government. 
regime change, uh, knowing that the guy she picks is close with this right-wing movement called Svoboda that is loyal to this ideology of a Ukrainian nationalist named Stepan Bandera, who is literally a thug of Adolf Hitler with the blood of tens of thousands of Jews, hundreds of thousands of Poles, hundreds of thousands of Russians on his hands. Literal Nazis, literal Nazis. And they exist today. If you go to England right now and look at the Challenger 2, CNN sent a news crew up there to film them. Uh, you won't see a certain clip on uh, on it because it was taken out, but it's of the uh, Ukrainian forces waving and then Sig Heil, Nazis. They're all Nazis. In Germany, they're getting trained on the Leopard 2. The Germans had to put a sign up in the uh, barracks saying, our dear Ukrainian guests, um, please do not paint, uh, you know, swastikas and iron crosses on the tanks while they're in Germany. Save that for when you get to uh, when you get to Ukraine. Nazis, literal Nazis. The Ukrainian army sings a ballad to Stepan Bandera. He is their father. Stepan Bandera is the national hero of Ukraine. Um, Americans don't get it. I mean, I, I, I keep telling you, know, this is deeply personal. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, guys out there who have family members who fought in World War II. Um, people who went across the beach on D-Day. I have an uncle that went across the beach on D-Day four days afterwards. He wasn't an infantryman. He wasn't armor. He was a logistics guy. The Red Ball Express he was involved in, uh, you know, trucks moving supplies up and down. And he had an interesting war. He got to go through Paris and move up. But when he got to uh, Belgium and the Ardennes um, around December, uh, the Germans opened up with 88s. He killed 250 of his, of his company instantaneously. He came to visit us. And if you knew this guy, I mean, he was very nondescript. He was a, he worked in Kellogg's uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He made cornflakes. And that's what he did for his entire adult life after the war. He was just a Kellogg's guy. Smoked cigarettes. He ended up dying of lung cancer because that's, you know, that's what happens. But um, happy-go-lucky guy. But he asked, he said, hey, could could we retrace my, my time? So we went to Normandy and then we drove him up. But when we got to that spot, he fell to his knees and sobbed like a baby because of the memory of all the people who died. Then we went to the cemetery in Luxembourg City uh, where his fallen brothers in arms are buried. And uh, I bring this up because, you know, there was a time when we fought Nazis, when our country was dedicated to the destruction of Nazi Germany. And yet right now, everything we're doing right now is facilitating military support for a Nazi regime, a literal Nazi regime in Ukraine. Um, and if you don't see that, then you're blind. It's, it's there for you to see. It's not peripheral. It's not minor. These aren't minor characters. This is mainstream. When General Zeluzhny, the commander of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, takes a selfie with Stepan Bandera's portrait behind him, what's that tell you? This is a Nazi regime, and yet we're supporting it. We're sustaining it. Um, this, is, this is problematic to me. This is, this is extraordinarily problematic that we're, that we're supporting these guys. Uh, but Putin... Um, you know, despite everything we did, he's been trying the negotiated settlement. And this is this is the important part. You know, Minsk, there's this thing called the Minsk Accords. It was the uh, first one was Minsk 1 in 2014, Minsk 2, 2015. The whole mm -hmm. purpose of the Minsk Accords was to prevent the ethnic Russians with the support of, uh, you, you, talk, you hear talk about Wagner Group today, or we talk about Wagner, this, Wagner, that. Well, Wagner was created in 2014 as a vehicle for Russia to provide military assistance without providing military units uh, because constitutionally this was still Ukraine. So the Russian army couldn't be officially involved in Ukraine. So they created Wagner as a cutout so that guys could be sheep dipped. They can leave their contract in the Russian military, sign a contract with Wagner and then fight in Ukraine, not as Russian soldiers, but as a private military contractor in support of, of the Ukraine. So Wagner has been there from, from day one. Wagner and the and the ethnic Russian militias had surrounded a uh, Ukrainian force uh, in 2014 of around 10 to 15,000. They were going to wipe them out, wipe them out. And the Ukrainians begged the French and the Germans to intervene, and they did. Angela Merkel led the charge. And um, you know Vladimir Putin has since then said the worst mistake he ever made was listening to them. What he should have done is just killed all those Ukrainians and ended this fight right then and there. Then we wouldn't have this war. But instead he said, okay. You want peace? I'll agree to a ceasefire, and we'll work on this thing called peace. And for eight years, Vladimir Putin and the Russian government were begging the West to implement Minsk, to bring it into this fight, a fight that killed nearly 15,000 um, people in the Donbass, several thousand of whom were children, women and children. Many of them were combatants, but 
Many of them were innocent civilians on both sides, Ukrainian and, and Russian. Um, but they didn't. And now we know why. Because the, the three signatories to Minsk too, Petro Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president at the time, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor at the time, and Francois Hollande, the French president, they've all come out and said that it was a sham. Minsk was a sham. It was never a legitimate peace agreement. It was designed to buy time to do what? To allow NATO to train a Ukrainian military capable of defeating the Russians in the Donbass and Crimea. So the only people talking about war here are the Ukrainians and NATO, and they're lying about wanting peace because it's a sham and they admit it. Putin is saying, no, let's do peace. I want to do peace. Even in October of 2021, after they shut down Minsk forever, he tried one last thing. Remember the draft treaties that he provided in December of 2021 to NATO and the United States saying, hey, all I want from this is, you know, for you to respect my legitimate national security interests, for you not to have NATO right up against my borders. I want a new European security framework. Let's talk about it. And he said, please, all I want you to do is read it and talk about it. Uh, but if you ignore it, then you leave us no choice. And they ignored it. And now, you, you know, Ukraine had 60 to 90,000 NATO trained troops ready to launch an attack against the Donbass. And Russia carried out what's, what's called uh, preemptive collective self-defense under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. A lot of people disagree with the, the legal, um, you know, legitimacy uh, of this. I'm just telling you what the Russians say they did. And history has proven them right. Because NATO was preparing the Ukrainian army to attack Donbass and using peace agreements as a cover. What was Russia's objective in this war? And this is the important part for understanding where Russia is coming now. Because I, like many others, thought Russia was just going to steamroll the Ukrainians. I mean, I, I, I straight up said this war is going to be over in a week. And it should have been over in a week. There's no way the Ukrainian army should have been able to stand up to the full weight of the Russians. But the Russians didn't come in full weight. They came in in lightweight hand hide behind the back, a special military operation. And it confused me because I'm like, why would they do this? Why would you ever do something like this? And the answer is they weren't seeking to conquer Ukraine. They were seeking to compel Ukraine to the negotiating table. And we see three rounds of negotiations in early March. Lesson, they started a week after the military operation began. And by 1 April, they had a peace treaty done. Russia and Ukraine had come up with the peace treaty which met all of Russia's criteria. Uh, basically, Ukraine will not be a member of NATO. Donbass will be liberated. Crimea will be Russia. But everything else is Ukraine. You can keep your army. You can keep Zelensky. You can do whatever you want. You just can't be a member of NATO. And the Ukrainians are going, okay, we'll, we'll do this. And then Boris Johnson flies in and sabotages the agreement. Ukraine pulls out. And now we know from the head of the Ukrainian intelligence service that that whole negotiation was a sham that the Ukrainians were simply buying time so that NATO could get its act together and figure out what the next level of support would be, which we found out in May became the new Lend-Lease Act. Tens of billions of dollars worth of equipment uh, poured into Ukraine, allowing them to reconstitute what was, what was a de facto defeated military. Their military had been crushed by the Russians by June. Russia had won this war, but we poured in tens of billions, reconstituted, and it changed the game. Now Ukraine carried out offensive operations against an overextended Russian force, recaptured Kharkov, took over the right bank of Kherson, and then the Russians responded by stabilizing the front and then mobilizing. 300,000 men, probably about 500,000 once you count the volunteers, um, and they trained them. These guys were all experienced uh, veterans, but they since September, they've been receiving fresh equipment and intensive training, and they're ready to come in and swamp the Ukrainians who have, during this time, been engaged in very bloody fighting where they have lost basically you know, up to 800, 1,000 men a day, especially in Bakhmut, very heavy fighting there. Um, some people say 10 to 14 brigades worth of troops eaten up. That's four to 5,000 men per brigade. Do the math. That's a lot of people. 90% casualty rate of the battalions committed. Um, a lot of dead, a lot of dead uh, Ukrainians, a lot of wounded Ukrainians. Um, Russia's getting ready to swamp them. I mean, Russia's going to clean house. That's my assessment. I mean, this isn't going to be quick and easy. War is never quick and easy. No plan survives initial contact with the enemy. And as I previously said, the Ukrainians are pretty darn good. So they're going to put up a fight. They're going to try their best to defend, but the Russians are going to swamp them. And I think Russia will militarily defeat Ukraine by the end of summer, early fall of this year. Uh, but is that what victory looks like? See, victory for Russia has two aspects to it. 
The first is demilitarization. And that means that Russia is going to destroy the Ukrainian military. They're going to demilitarize it. So if you're a Ukrainian carrying a weapon, you either surrender, you get wounded and evacuated, or you die. All this NATO equipment we're talking about sending in will either be destroyed by Russia or captured by Russia. It's not going to have any impact on the battlefield. Um, that's just a, just a straight-up statement of fact. But now there's a more complicated part, denazification. That's the political side of this fight. How do you denazify Ukraine? And some people believe you can only denazify by occupying all of Ukraine. Ukraine's a big country, very big country. And Russia got in trouble in the special military operation by only coming in with 200,000 troops because they didn't want to mobilize at that time. They didn't want to go to war. But when you have 200,000 troops on a 1,200-kilometer front, um, that means you got 120 guys per kilometer, but you don't because those 200,000 aren't all on the front. Anybody who's been in the military knows that the majority of them are actually in the rear with the gear, uh, pogues, you know, <laughs> doing the communications, logistics, and all that. There's only about 60 to 80,000 of them on the front line, which now means you got 60 to 80 guys per kilometer of front. That's not a lot of guys. Um, and the Russians had, had basically created an untenable situation when the, when the United States and NATO poured tens of billions of dollars into the Ukrainian military, reconstituting 70,000 guys with fresh equipment, fresh tactics, et cetera. They were able to successfully push the Russians back in Kharkov and Kherson. But in doing so, they suffered horrendous casualties, horrendous casualties. And now the Russians have mobilized and they're getting ready to the swamp. They got about 700,000 dudes armed with the best equipment in the world going up against around 200, maybe 225,000 uh, Ukrainians uh, whose equipment, as I said, they're out of ammunition. Uh, they're out of tanks. They're out of artillery. They're out of everything except courage. And courage doesn't hack it when you get stormed on by this. So the Russians are going to win that battle, but they still have the, they don't have enough troops. If they, if they make the same mistake of trying to take all of Ukraine, you'll run into that overextended position again. So how do you denazify? The Russians are getting ready to launch um, the, their equivalent of the strategic air campaign. And they, we've already seen sort of a, a lead up to this. Um, you know, Russia has destroyed the electrical power generation capability of Ukraine. Um, you know, Ukraine's pumping out with 30, 40% capacity right now, and that can be shut off very soon, and it will be shut off very soon. Russia's getting ready to drop all the bridges, all the close all the rail tunnels, close all the rail lines. Russia's going to turn Ukraine into a third world stone age type. They're going to collapse the society, collapse the industry, collapse the infrastructure. And in doing so, they will collapse the political support for the Zelensky government, which is the goal and objective here. They want to have regime change take place so that a new Ukrainian government can be inserted, one that will agree to constitutional changes that outlaw Stepan Bandera's ideology, outlaw political parties that support Bandera ideology, and forever prohibit Ukraine from joining NATO. That's denazification. That may take a little bit longer than demilitarization. I think the shooting part of this war will be over come uh, the end of summer, early August, but the, the political aspect of it will probably drag in through the winter of 2023 into 2024. Um, so that, that's where I see things going right now. Um, you know, but there's some wild cards. We don't know. What is Poland going to do? Is Poland going to make a grab for Western Ukraine? If they do so, then Belarus gets dragged in. Uh, is Ukraine going to work with Moldova and Romania to try and make Transnistria a, an issue down south? So to compel Russia to divert forces away from their current offensive direction, which I believe is towards Kharkov and securing uh, all the, the, the four Russian territories, and instead have to go to Odessa to link up with Transnistria and save them. So there's some wild cards in there. And as I said earlier, no plan survives initial contact with the enemy. And anybody who thinks they have a crystal ball that sees all and knows all is a fool. I gave you my assessment because you asked my assessment. But if I were anybody, I wouldn't go to Vegas and put money on what I just said because there's a lot of fighting left to be done. There's a lot of stuff waiting to happen. And um, we just don't know how this is going to end. I, I, I believe it's going to end with the Russian victory. I think all the math adds up to that. But... Um, that victory is not going to be easy. It's going to be bloody. And uh, there's plenty of opportunity for people to make mistakes and, um, you know, and, and, and have the outcome altered by those mistakes. Well, <clears throat> you didn't bring any good news, which I wasn't expecting anyway. Um, but I, <laughs> I thank you for coming on the show, man. I'm actually out of time, but uh, we're going to have to do this again. I, I do want people 
to listen to what you have to say because of, you know, the obvious vast amount of knowledge you have on the subject and your experience um, in the military and as a UN weapons inspector and all the books you've written and just, you know, everything you have to say about the subject. So where can people follow you and keep up with your work? Um, I've tried to make it easy. Um, so there's just one place. It's scottritterextra.com. And uh, there, everything I write will be is, is available. Every every podcast where people provide me links, for instance, if you provide me a link, it'll be available there. Um, there is no paywall. So it's free. Um, if you want to help support, because I do a lot of stuff, there's the ability to subscribe to the Substack, but that's that's your business, not mine. You don't have to do it. Um, everything's there, and um, and if you if if you want to, um, what I what I encourage people to do again, I always tell people never accept what I say at face value. I mean, just assume that I am in fact a Russian agent, and that everything I came on and told you tonight is Russian propaganda. That's okay because I gave you data sets now. Go and research what I said and try and prove me wrong. Try and prove me wrong. See, that's a journey of discovery that will actually allow people to empower themselves with knowledge and information because I'm not wrong. But don't take my word for it. <laughs> Challenge me. Test me. Go out there. Do your research. And uh, and you'll become better for it because then you won't be saying, uh, I believe this because Scott Ritter told me or Reed Coverdale told me. You'll say, I believe this because I did the homework and I believe it myself. And uh that's the best kind of citizen, the citizen that is self-empowered with knowledge and information to make the complicated decisions that we as citizens need to make to hold those when we elect a higher office accountable for what they do in our name. Absolutely. All right, guys, I am going to go jump on Tower Gang. So if you're a subscriber to that show, follow me over there and go check out Scott Ritter's uh, platforms. I've listed some of them in the links in the description and then everything he just said as well. And we will catch you guys on the next show.